So, um, we're going to be this morning in Acts chapter 6, and um, you can turn there in your Bibles, and those of you that are here with me, you can turn there and and stand as I read um, from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests We're becoming obedient to the faith. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you again for your word and the reminder that we receive really on every page that that you are our sovereign, loving God, that you are in absolute control of the events of this world. And we know, God, from your word that you work all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And so we trust in you, God, and we also thank you For these circumstances, because you tell us as your people to not only rejoice in all things, but to give thanks for all things in all things. And so, Lord, we do so by faith, knowing that you are good, you do all things well. And there are many things that you are doing, God, through this that we can't see, may never know. But we know that you are at work and we pray, God, for your effective work throughout this world, as well as in us as we respond to you and live in Christ during these, these times. So thank you for your word, and I again ask that you would speak to our hearts through it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, as we are now in Acts, um, really the first problem has arisen in the church here. But this chapter not only talks about an internal problem where there's a potential for for great division and dissension within the church, but the last half of the chapter, which I didn't read, is going to talk about the rising of persecution. There's already been some amount of persecution, but it's going to escalate, and by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, we'll have our first martyr of the early church. And so this chapter introduces Satan's two chief um, tactics for hurting the church. One is internal division, and the other is external persecution. And so the chapter begins that it says, at this time, while things are going great, the disciples were increasing in number, and a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So there's a number of things To observe here, Um, first is um, is it just maybe a bit of a sidetrack? But um, they're called disciples here, 
And I know there's, there's different um, thought on what makes a disciple. The basic word disciple means follower or learner. And in the Gospels, there were several categories of disciples. The, the disciples were the most closed category were the 12 men that were following Jesus around every day. And then there was a broader group of disciples, and then there was even a broader group. And so there are basically three circles of disciples in the Gospels. And the word disciple is mentioned, I think it's 238 times in the Gospels. So it's a pretty dominant theme in the Gospels. And then you come to Acts, and it's mentioned another 28 times. And then it's done. There's never another mention of disciple in the Bible after the book of Acts. Which is curious because Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples in Matthew 28. So you would think since that is the mandate that Jesus has given to his disciples, that we make disciples, that that would be something that would be emphasized throughout the New Testament. But it isn't. And so as we have one guest speaker who comes here occasionally to his hill, he's a classmate of mine from seminary. Um, he actually spoke to the, to the staff about this in his staff devotions when he was here not long ago. And he pointed out that not only is disciple not mentioned in any of the epistles after the book of Acts, but what is mentioned more than anything else is the term bondservant, but not disciple. And so he kind of takes from that, that and, and I think it's, it's food worth thinking about, um, that Maybe that's where the focus ought to be with the church. And I kind of, you know, I've been mulling over that a bit ever since that devotion. And, and he's not the only one by any stretch that's made the observation that disciples are not mentioned after Acts. Um, but if what is being mentioned is bondservant, that kind of puts a different spin on the whole idea of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, because a bondservant is someone who basically has let go of their will. Whereas a disciple, e even though he is a follower and a learner of someone else, I don't know about you, but for me, it just kind of still feels like, well, I can still decide when to follow and when to learn. And, and so I kind of, a disciple, in, in a sense, he's, he's a disciple by his choice, and he's choosing every day who to follow and who to learn from. Whereas a bondservant has given up on his will. He, he has completely yielded his will over to someone else. And that's how Jesus lived. He also lived as a disciple, we know. He says he had the heart of a disciple. Isaiah, I believe, said that about Christ. But his whole life was, not my will, but yours be done. And so I kind of like that thought that, we ought to probably be putting more emphasis as Christians on wanting people to follow with a completely abandoned will. And so that being the aspect of discipleship that's not often emphasized. We emphasize learning doctrinal truths. We, we emphasize learning scripture. Um, but we don't necessarily do a good, very good job sometimes, I think, of just yielding your will completely to Jesus as a bondservant. So anyway, that's a bit of, a, of an excursion there. So we'll come back to the text. Now at that time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose against the, on the part of the Hellenistic Jews. Well, what is a Hellenistic Jew? 
And so I'm going to read here from Tom Constable in his commentary notes. And he says, the basic distinction between the Hebrews and the Hellenist appears to have been linguistic. Those who could speak a Semitic language were Hebrews, and those who could not were Hellenist. Well, what were the Semitic languages that they were speaking? Principally Aramaic, but also Hebrew. And not all Jews knew Aramaic or Hebrew, but the principal language of the day in the area of Palestine or Israel was Aramaic. And the Jews living outside of Israel, many of them didn't know that language. Now, Greek was the universal language, so a lot of the Jews living in Israel spoke Greek. And most of the Jews living outside of Israel spoke Greek. So most people of that day were at least bilingual. Many were trilingual. Jesus was probably trilingual, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And that was not uncommon. So unlike, they were not Americans, in other words, um, where we just speak one and we don't do that very well. At least speaking for myself. But they spoke two and three languages. But if you lived outside Israel and you were a Jew, you spoke Greek, but you also spoke your own native language, which was not Aramaic or Hebrew. And so apparently um, there were people, a number of people, widows in particular, who had moved back to Israel in their old age. Their, maybe their husbands had died and, and, and they, at that time or maybe after they moved to Israel. But probably these are just good, devout Jewish people who said, you know, I want to die in the homeland. I want to die in Israel. And so they moved back and they had never lived there before. Um, but that was always been the goal to go back to Israel and be buried in Israel. And so you've got all these older people, Jewish people, who are there who don't know the language. And they've come to know Christ. Now, if anything the Jewish people had going for them is they were very concerned about the widow and the orphan. Because the Old Testament is constantly emphasizing, take care of the widows and the orphans. So there's some conjecture here, but it seems that perhaps these Jewish Hellenist widows, Hellenist being that they lived outside the country and now they've moved back and they don't know Aramaic, that they probably were being taken care of by the temple, by the Judaic system prior to their faith in Christ. And this is where I'm kind of reading into it a little bit here. But it could be that once they became Christians, they were cut off from the support that they had been receiving. Because you wonder, why, why do they even need to go to the church? And because the Israel did a great job, as far as we know, taking care of the, of the widow and the orphan. But all of a sudden, these widows are in need. And they were looking to the church. And so the... the the conjecture here is that they had been cut off from the aid that the temple institution would have made available to these widows. And so they're going, we're Christians now. We're disciples of Christ now. And so they're looking to the early church to supply for them. And so they've got a very real need. And, but they don't speak the language, and they're being overlooked. It's not purposeful. It's accidental. But nonetheless, it's a very real need, and something needs to be done about it. 
And so reading on here at this quote, within Judaism, frequent tensions arose between the two groups of people, the Hellenist and the Hebrews. And this cultural problem carried over into the church. The Hebrews observed the Mosaic law much more strictly than the Hellenist brethren. Conversely, the Hellenists typically regarded the Hebrews as quite narrow-minded and self-centered. The Hebrews and the Hellenists even had their own separate synagogues in Jerusalem. But when they became Christians, they came together as one. So that really puts, again, a, 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 a helpful light on it. These Hellenist widows, before becoming Christians, would have been going to Hellenist synagogues. Now they've become Christians. They're saved. They would not have felt comfortable any longer at the synagogue. They may have even been put out of the synagogue. We don't know. But we do know they're not being cared for by anybody, and the church is even overlooking them. So they go to the apostles and say something needs to be done. So in verse 2, And the twelve um, summoned the congregation of the disciples. That's a big summoning, right? The estimates are as high as 25,000 Christians now living in Jerusalem. Now, how many of that they summoned, we don't know, but it just says they summoned the congregation. So that's a pretty big, massive church gathering. And they said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, here's another thing we need to think about. I've always read this until now. Maybe, I think I've read it wrong because I've read this as this was a problem that really had nothing to do with the apostles. And here come the Hellenists saying, you guys need to do something about this problem. Now, if you've ever been in leadership, that's a, that's a common problem, is people are always wanting to put the monkey on your back. And so there's actually one of the early leadership books that I read many years ago, one of the three-minute manager books, and it was how to get the monkey off of your back. Because people are always wanting to come to you. You're in leadership and say, I've got a problem. You need to fix my problem. And that's how I've always read this. But that may not be correct, because as we've been stepping through Acts now, remember, when the people have been giving money, who have they been giving their money to? The apostles. And who's been distributing the money? The apostles. So who's been in charge of the feeding program? The apostles. Because they're the ones, as the money has been, property's been sold, the money's brought to the apostles, and the apostles determine how to give out the money. So they have been doing much more than praying and studying God's Word. They've been administrating the, in the entire program for feeding the people. And so this is not what God's called them to, and it's just getting bigger. And through no purposeful fault of their own, they've been overlooking people that they don't speak the language of those ladies themselves. And so now it's like they're going, so in other words, this is a problem of their own making. So they weren't, so these Hellenists weren't skipping the people who caused the problem and going ahead above them to the leadership. They were going straight to the people who caused the problem, the apostles. So that's a different way of looking at this, but I think it's, it's probably uh, more reflective of what's going on. This is what Wearsby says. The apostles studied the situation and concluded they were to blame. 
Now, that's a rare thing in itself, that the leadership studies a situation and goes, we're at fault. This is a problem we have created. It wasn't intentional, but they were taking responsibility for this. So they were so busy serving tables that they were neglecting prayer and the ministry of the word. They had created their own problem because they were trying to do too much. Even today, some pastors are so busy with secondary tasks that they fail to spend adequate time in study and in prayer. This creates a spiritual deficiency in the church that makes it easy for problems to develop. So it's a good thing this problem happened. If everybody had just been not saying anything, the apostles would have never known there was a problem. And that's the problem that happens with leadership too. I can tell you firsthand from being a Bible school director, there's times when there are problems going on in the school and I know nothing about it, but everybody assumes that I do because I'm the director. And I don't know anything about it. I don't know anything. And so here, when somebody finally comes and tells me, I go, oh, I had no idea. And so it's not always a bad thing to go tell leadership what the problem is. You can't just assume they know. They're not omniscient. Only God is. And so there can be things happening right under their nose, and they have no idea what's going on. And so it's better to assume ignorance on the part of the leadership than to assume bad motivation on the part of the leadership. These apostles had no intention of ignoring these women, but you can see that's how it happens is that you assume, well, they must know. These are good guys, spirit-filled guys. Obviously, they know what's going on here. Well, if they're good guys and spirit-filled guys, then they wouldn't, they, they, they'd do something about it if they knew what was going on here. But leadership doesn't know everything. And sometimes there are things that are happening that they just don't know about, even though they created the problem. And so it's, it's significant here that they go straight to the people who caused the problem. And those people acknowledge we caused the problem. So we need to fix the problem. And the way to fix it was not to cast blame, deflect. It was to take responsibility and then to delegate and say, clearly, we're doing too much. And so to give away some of the responsibility because there was too much on their plate. This is many times how God raises up leaders. We would have never known about Stephen and Philip and these other men if this problem had not arisen and the leadership had not been willing to bring other people in. So God raises up leaders by giving leaders too much to do. And then if they're forcing them to let go of stuff so other people can rise to the surface. So this is one part where being a lazy leader is not always a bad thing because you want other people to help you out. And so, you know, delegating is many times the right thing to do. It can be the wrong thing, but it is many times the right thing. And I'll say, when I first became director here at His Hill, one of the previous directors, Sonny Westbrook, once told me, he says, Charlie, you cannot delegate responsibility. You cannot delegate authority. And what he meant by that is you can give people responsibility for tasks that you have to do. But don't forget, you're still responsible for what they do. And so choose good people. But don't just think, okay, I've given it to somebody else. I can walk away. And if, they, and if it blows up, I don't take any responsibility for it. No, you are still 
responsible, even though you've put somebody else in charge. And, and you have to remember that in, in leadership. If it blows up, it's still the buck stops somewhere and it stops at the top. And so it, you've got to take responsibility for these things. And even after you've delegated, you still need to keep a hand on it, not because you don't trust the people or anything, but because you still have responsibility. I like this quote that I found from D.L. Moody. This came from Wearsby as, as well. D.L. Moody used to say that it's better to put 10 men to work than to try to do the work of 10 men. Amen. And that's especially how the church ought to function. Multiple leadership. Raising up leaders. Putting people in charge of things. And that's what these men did. Now, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. That serving tables seems that's a bit harsh. It, it, it's almost pejorative there, where it's below us. It's beneath us to serve tables. Well, that's not what they're saying. First of all, nothing is beneath Jesus. Right at the end of his earthly life, John chapter 13, he's putting a towel around him and getting down on his knees and washing the disciples' feet. That was the most menial job a person could do, wash somebody's feet. So there is nothing beneath Jesus, and there should be nothing beneath the servant of Christ. Nothing. Ian Thomas used to say, if a man can't clean toilets, he can't be the director of a torchbearer school. And what he meant was, nothing should be beneath you, because nothing was beneath Christ doing. So I don't think these men are saying, Serving tables is beneath us. They knew better than that. They had been the ones serving the tables. Remember, again, they were the ones who had been in charge of this whole food distribution program. They were the ones that the money was laid at their feet. And they were the ones determining how the money was going to be spent, who the food was going to go to. And so they're not saying this was beneath us because they've been doing it for all this time. What they're saying is this isn't what God has called us to do, clearly. He's not giving us the grace to do this on top of praying and preaching the word. And so that's one of the things sometimes when you know you're doing things that God doesn't want you to do, God just simply hasn't given the grace for it. It's too much. Something's got to go. Amen. Well, then let it go. And God will give, wants to raise up other people to do these things. And it's a blessing to be able to have people you can give it to. And they, fortunately, had a lot of good people to choose from. There was no reason for these men to be trying to do everything. Give it away. And so they weren't saying this is below us. We're too good for this. But another thing is, when they've mentioned the serving of tables, I don't think that they were actually talking about bringing the food and putting it in front of somebody. There's nothing wrong with doing that, and they they weren't above doing that. But this is talking about administrating a big food distribution program. So this is more of an administrative role than it is an actual serving tables role. So the serving tables is a figure of speech for running the whole program, okay? And that's why they had to have such 
exemplary, well-qualified men because they were being given a lot of responsibility. It was not just serving tables and wiping off tables. It was much bigger than that. And it, and it required really, really good men to do this. And so then it comes to the selecting of these men. And the apostles say, verse 3, but select from among you. So it says, you do the selecting. And again, this is informative here because they're going, obviously we've created this problem because we were ignorant, not because we had bad motives. Once again, don't assign wrong motives to other people when it may just be ignorance. There's so many times I've been in conversation with people and I said, just call me stupid. I can handle that. But don't tell me I'm evil because I didn't mean to hurt you. I overlooked. I should have thought about you. I'm stupid. I'm dull. But I did not have evil motives. Okay? And so that's what's going on. So they, they went to these guys and the disciples, we're wrong. We created the problem. But we can't fix the problem. Because we're obviously, this is a, a cultural thing going on here that we can't fully relate to. So you guys fix it. And so that shows trust on their part. doesn't show that they were disinterested. They were very interested. But in wisdom, they said the best way for us to handle this is not to handle it, to let other people handle it, just to give it up. And so they said, you choose from among you seven men. Now, where did the seven men come from? And, and my first thought was, well, they did like Nehemiah. And they just, they surveyed the situation. Nehemiah got on his donkey and he went and surveyed the whole city. And he came back and he told people, this is what needs to happen. And so I'm thinking these guys, these apostles, they surveyed the situation. They said, okay, we've seen how many widows there are. It takes seven people to handle this. But it's probably more likely that they're responding a bit to how their own Jewish culture worked. Every neighborhood, every community had seven men. There was a seven-man council that basically administrated each local affair. So every local community would have a, have a seven-member council that helped to run things. They were not elders, and, but, they, but they were functioning in a way that they just helped administrate the local community. And so he, they're borrowing a bit from that, which is okay. And again, we do that. You know, we, we, the church is not something that springs um, from culture. It's something that God has created. But that doesn't mean that the, that the church can't borrow from things in culture that are working. We just don't want it, the church to become all about the culture. It should be transcultural. It should be transformative to culture. But there are things in culture that are neither bad nor good. They just, there are, and they're, they're not necessarily sp spoken of in, in, in the Bible, but they're okay. And, and it's okay to borrow from those things. And that's what they were doing here. So choose seven men. And then he gives the qualifications. Good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. Okay, seven men. Good reputations, full of the Spirit, that means under the control of the Spirit, and also being characterized by wisdom. So these are high standards. Now, there's nothing in this passage that calls these men deacons. 
But we have typically gone to this passage when, when saying this is what a deacon is supposed to be like. Now, the, the verb for a deacon is mentioned throughout this passage. Serving is, is the word for deacon or, or um, diaconus. I may not even pronounce it right because of my Texan mouth. But it's the, it's the same root word that we get deacon from. And so, but it's the, the, the noun form and the office is not mentioned in this passage, just like elders not. But without having the, the offices of elder and deacon explicitly mentioned in this passage, we can basically see that's what's happening here. We have one group of people, the apostles, who are functioning as elders, and now another group of people who are functioning as deacons, even though they don't have the titles yet. And that's usually how things happen. First, you get, just the, you get the job before you get the job title. And we see that all the time here at His Hill. We've, you know, we never used to have a, a Bible school principal here. We just had a director and assistant director. Well, as different people come on staff, the job titles change. Because the job changes, the job title changes. And now we have a director and a principal. But, and so that's often how things happen. The titles, the office comes later, not first. You don't create an office and then find somebody to fill it. But the office comes out of the need. And so here we find, I believe, that it would be legitimate to say the office of deacon is springing from this passage. And it is a good passage to go to to see what a deacon is supposed to do. And as we say at Bernie Bible Church, they aren't just concerned with with, um, practical needs, as it were. There's no sharp distinction in Scripture between practical and spiritual because in scripture every need is a practical need a spiritual need is a practical need and so really there but there is some distinction between a physical need and a spiritual need and but all needs are practical needs okay going to church meeting with the body of christ is a practical need it's not just a spiritual need And that's one of the things that's disturbing so much of us with what's going on today because as people are being just isolated, I think about all the old saints that we have that are sitting in nursing homes where they aren't even allowed to come out of their rooms. And you go, solitary confinement, you know, that is having, that is, that, there's, there's great harm potentially is done when you have somebody isolated too long in extreme circumstances. I mean, that's what we do to prisoners. We put them in solitary confinement. And so you've got these dear saints that are locked away and they don't have anybody to come and visit them. That's a bad thing. And so we, and so we need to, as a church, to really be thinking through this and how can we communicate, especially with those who have hardly any contact with anybody. I'm an introvert and it's killing me to have so little contact with people. And I'm having more contact with most because of just where we live. But, it, you know, we, it's, so we've got to think where, how can we meet this need? And this is not just a practical need. This is a, as though it's not spiritual. They, they overlap. The physical needs and, and the spiritual, emotional needs, it all overlaps. And so it's hard when it comes to a church making a distinction between what the elder is supposed to do and what the deacon and deacon is supposed to do. There's overlap. There truly is. What you're looking for is godly men to fill that deacon role who who look at meeting physical needs as a spiritual ministry. 
Because everything is spiritual to one degree or another. And that's what this early church was seeing. This is more than serving tables. This is more than administrating a food program. This is people need to be looked after in every way. And and this is a spiritual task, though it is principally a practical, physical task. And I know I'm using words, but you understand what I'm trying to say. It's hard to make this distinction, and it is all extremely important. The role of a deacon is vitally important, or they wouldn't be putting this kind of man in charge. So you say a lot about the importance of a job by who you appoint to do the job. And they are appointing very qualified, good men for this job. And that's what a church ought to be doing. It ought to be looking for the best men for each job that it appoints. So much so that no deacon could say, well, maybe they just don't think I'm up to being an elder. Because I'm telling you, I look at these deacons and I, I don't see any spiritual difference between them and the elders. Amen. And I look at our elders that we have had historically at Bernie Bible Church, I don't see any spiritual difference between those men and the elders. And so it's not about that. But it is about, you know, where would they best fit as a deacon or as an elder? And so you trust the Lord with this. You seek God. God, who should we have as deacons? Who should we have as elders? And, and you're seeking the mind of the Lord and for God to say, this is who we want. And so these men, the apostles, elders, if you want to call them that, said, church, give us some names, seven names. And so the church says, we like that. And guess who they chose? Seven men who were not Hebrew Jews. Six of them were Hellenist. I mean, who would have thought they'd do this? I mean, if, I, if I'd been in charge, I'd go, well, let's, let's give three and four, you know, three Hellenists and four of the other or whatever. But they, none of them were Hebrew Jews. Six of the seven, we know this because every one of them has a Greek name. There are no Jewish names here. Every one of the seven had a Greek name. And so they're going, okay. And this wasn't, you know, poking their finger in their eye or anything. They just says, We're, these are the best for this job. These are the best people because they know the Hellenist culture and they also know the Hebrew culture. These are men who can walk in both worlds. Men who will unify this situation and not divide this situation. And that's what they found. And they found seven tremendous men. All of them non-Hebrew Jews. Meaning that they did not grow up, did not live in the area of Israel during their lives. The last one that's mentioned, he was actually a proselyte. So he's a Gentile who became a Jew and now has become a Christian. Six of them Hellenist Jews, one of them a Gentile. And they said, these men are filled with the Spirit, filled with with wisdom. Every one of them is of good reputation. And by appointing them, it'll take away the division. And the apostles, so the the church nominates them. And the apostles here say, okay. Now again, that doesn't mean this is the way it's always supposed to work in every church. But there's wisdom here. And so at our church, and I think as many churches would do it this way, um, we would say, 
nominations are open to the congregation for elder and deacon. And so then names would be presented to the deacon board, to the elder board for elders and deacons. And before the elders would say, okay, this for deacons, these are the ones that we like, we will go to the deacons and say, these are the names that we're considering. These are the names that have been put forward. Sometimes they're put forward by the elders. Sometimes they're put forward, by, but the, the process is an open process. But then there'll be times when something might come up that doesn't, maybe it just disqualifies the person from being a deacon that nobody knew or an elder, nobody knew. Well, you can't just air that in front of the church and say, this guy is not eligible to be an elder. Oh, my word. That, they just, you just, some, you, some things you just have to be kept private. And so that's where the church has to trust and not assign bad motivation to the elders here because it, they, they have to use their God-given wisdom to handle this in the best way that's not going to be embarrassing or cause further division. And you just have to trust. Sometimes it's that they, the, the deacons might say, you know, we just don't think that guy would be a good fit for us. Well, how do you say that to the whole church? And so you just have to trust that these are good guys who, who are seeking the Lord's mind and trying to make the best decision as they believe that God is directing. But in our church, the elders would finally put forward a list of names. After they've consulted with the church and after they've consulted with the deacons, and they would say, here are the names, congregation, that we believe that God has put his endorsement on. And then the church votes. Now, there's no vote being taken here, but it does say that after everything was done, this found approval with the entire congregation. So that tells us the congregation was involved in the process. And so some churches would say, you know, this is purely, totally an elder-run church, and the congregation doesn't have anything to say in the matter. Well, that's just stupid, <laughs> in my humble opinion, because they do. They always have something to say in the matter. And if no other way to express their say, they can stop giving a check, or they can just walk out the door and not, coming back, not come back. So the congregation always is going to express its voice, okay? But the elders, the leadership, ought to be conducting itself in a humble, careful manner to where it can find approval with the whole congregation. We won't get into the whole thing about unanimity and all that, but you understand that when God is working in a church, there ought to be, we would hope for, we would pray for, great consensus within the body, unity within the body. doesn't mean we're all going to be of the same opinion, but there can always be unity within the body. So, it says, you choose seven guys, full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, good reputation. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. What does that look like? Well, you know, what, what does it look like to be devoting yourself to prayer? It can mean you spend hours every day in your closet. Nobody knows, you just, just, you've just gone in your closet. And you, that's your prayer closet. Like that movie, Christian movie that came out a while ago, War Room. And that dear widow had her, had her prayer closet. Powerful movie. Loved it. And um, that could mean that. 
that you just get, you free up your elders to spend hours a day on their knees in prayer. Well, that's probably not going to happen because elders have to work and we all have limits on our time. It could mean massive amounts of time spent in corporate prayer. It could mean praying with people. It's probably all of the above. It means that elders ought to have time and take the time. We usually all have, most of us have more time than we're willing to admit. If we look at how much time we waste, it's hard to say we don't have enough time. There's always time to pray. And we should be praying privately. We should be praying corporately. But elders and deacons ought to also be men, especially elders, who really the whole body of Christ, doesn't matter about the office, who are willing to pray with people. It's a tremendous ministry. I don't do it enough. But to just sit with somebody, walk with somebody, and pray with them. I really appreciate how much prayer is coming back into focus within Torchbearers International. It is a great blessing to be with brothers in Christ, to share prayer requests, and not just share prayer requests, but to pray. And we are praying like never before, perhaps, in Torchbearers. It's a good thing. And, and so that is in itself a ministry. It's not just a private ministry that nobody sees. But I think just, just looking at the tone of this church and how involved they are with each other's lives, I can't imagine that they're saying, let us have less involvement with people. They're just wanting to focus the involvement so that, it's, so that it's a purposeful involvement that is in keeping with what their primary calling is, prayer and God's Word, so that they do have the time maybe to go around to people's homes or to meet them where they're working or to take them out for lunch and say, how can I pray for you? And then they do it. They actually pray with them and pray for them. And the ministry of God's word. Now, this is a two-edge, this is a road that goes both directions. Every church ought to want its leadership to focus like a laser beam on prayer and God's word. The congregation should want that and encourage that from its leadership. It should say, if our leaders do nothing else but teach God's word and pray, they have fulfilled what we want from them. Because that is their basic calling. But having said that, the leadership should believe the same. Because honestly, they don't all. That there's nothing I could do that's more important with my time when it comes to the body of Christ than to pray and to teach God's word. This is God's calling. And I need to not let this be torn away by other things that are good, but distract me from the one thing that God has called me to. Because the good is always the enemy of the best. This is what God would have me to do.
we should note that there's no single pastor. Pastors aren't even mentioned here. There is no single elder. There is no single deacon. Plurality of leadership all the way through this. And it's also male. This doesn't mean that there are no jobs, no tasks for women, but it does mean that there are certain tasks which should fall to male leadership, multiple male leadership, spirit-filled, godly, qualified leadership. This is how God wants the church to function. And that is not cultural, and it's becoming more unpopular all the time. You say that elders can be only men, and people will say, well, then you hate women. Shouldn't surprise us. You say marriage is only between a man and a woman, and we're being accused of hating homosexuals. No, has nothing to do with hating homosexuals. We love all people, all people. But yes, marriage is between a man and a woman. And all people have worth before God. There are no second-class citizens in the church. But yes, leadership in the church, particularly the role of an elder and the role of a deacon, is reserved for men. That doesn't make us misogynist. doesn't mean we hate women. It's because this is what God has ordained. And there are many very practical and essential areas for women to function in, and it should be embraced and celebrated and honored. But God has said, men are to be elders and deacons. Verse 5, this statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So I, I, ha, I have to read um, J. Vernon McGee on the laying on of hands. Um, it's a good Texan, that J. Vernon McGee. Even though he spent most of his ministry in California, we'll forgive him. It says, now friends, typical J. Vernon McGee, now friends, there is a great deal of hocus pocus and abracadabra connected with this matter of laying on of hands. A great many people think that the, some spiritual power is connected to it. They think that putting on of hands communicates something to a person. Frankly, the only thing you can communicate to someone else by laying on of hands is disease germs. You can pass them on, but you cannot pass on any kind of power. So it's kind of appropriate maybe for today with all of our social distancing and all. He says, the only thing you're going to communicate to somebody by laying hands on is germs, okay, not power. So to read from somebody else, what was the purpose of this? I'm trying to find here in my notes. Laying on of hands for somebody symbolized the bestowal of a blessing. It also represented identification with the person, commissioning as a kind of successor and granting authority. But the main idea was just identification. So in the Old Testament, when you brought a sheep or a bull or something to be sacrificed before the animal was killed, you put your hands on the head of that animal. You weren't saying, 
the animal has just become a person or the person has just become an animal. And you're not transferring your sin onto the animal. You're just saying, I deserve to die for my sin, for the wages of sin is death. And this animal, I'm identifying with this animal, and this animal's identifying with me, this animal is going to take my place. It was a point of identification was all. Didn't convey, didn't confer anything. I like one of our um, good friend of mine, very godly man, um, amazing guy, and he has said, do we believe in prayer or not? That when we are in prayer, that we are talking to a God who is omnipresent. So God doesn't become more present and our prayers don't become more effective when we're in the same room with a person. When we're holding the hands of the person we're praying for. When we're laying hands on the head of the person we're praying for. Our prayers are just as effective if you're on the other side of the world. Because God is omnipresent. Do we believe that or not? But somehow it becomes more spiritual, more whatever, when we lay hands on somebody. Nothing is being conveyed to that person. It's just a way for us to say, we're with you, man. We're behind you. We're identified with you. We love you. It's all it's saying. But nothing is being transferred to the person. So they, they brought them before the apostles. They prayed for them. And they laid their hands on them. And then the word of God kept on spreading. The number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And also, we're told, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Some estimates are that there were as many as 2,000 priests living in Jerusalem at this time. And a great many of them were coming to faith. So how do we know things are going good in the church? The word is spreading. People are coming to Christ. And there's still great unity in the church. We shouldn't lose sight of those things. What makes a good church? There's nothing here about programs. Nothing here about a great youth ministry. Nothing here about anything other than those simple things. The church was unified. The word is spreading. And the people are coming to Christ. Those are the marks of a good church. I'll never forget when one of the people that has been with our church now for a long time before they ever joined us, they were already middle-aged and they had seen enough churches, they thought the best way to know what's going on in church is not by Sunday morning, what you see. Because that can just be a show. But you'll know what's going on in a church when you go to the business meeting and see how they, how they discuss money. And so they came to one of the business meetings and they said, this is the church we want to be a part of. There's more to being a good church than programs or feeling feelings when you walk through the door. The word of God is spreading. People are coming to Christ and there's great unity. Nothing really disturbs us more as the body of Christ, then disunity hurts us all.
Sometimes it is a natural consequence of people walking in the flesh. So you can't, you can't be one all the time with all people. We have to understand that. Sometimes there has to be discipline. We understand that. But the church in general should be characterized at all times by the spreading of God's word, people coming to Christ in unity within the body. I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our body. Though we are separated at this time, Lord, it puts new meaning to what Paul said, though absent in the body, present in spirit. And I know we are present with each other in spirit. We love each other because of the love that you have shed abroad in our hearts for yourself and for your body, your people. And we do miss each other. Lord, it's hard having to communicate in this way. It's not really a communication. It's just a one-way thing. And I pray, Lord, that this time you would use it to your glory and that you would accomplish your purposes in each of our hearts through this. But I also pray that you would bring it to a quick close, God, that we could once again come together as a body. And Lord, if nothing else, I know we'll come together with greater joy and, and, and just fulfillment um, than maybe we ever have. Because absence makes the heart grow fonder. And our hearts, Lord, are more than fond for your body and for Jesus, the head. We do pray for your, your well-keeping of each of us, Lord, that we would, would be under your, your blessed ministry of care. And, Lord, that in the time of isolation that you would truly be near as you always are. But our hearts, Lord, and our minds, our spirits would be more awake to your presence than maybe any other time in our lives. That you would comfort us, minister to us, teach us, God. And especially, Lord, as we have time to pray, that you would lead us by your Spirit in how to pray well for each other. Thank you, God, for this opportunity that we have to draw near to you. And I pray it would be with our hearts responding fully to you as bondservants of Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.